Two and a Half Admins, episode 144. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Let's do some news then. Google pushes .zip and .mov domains onto the internet, and the internet pushes back. The big question I have about this is just, why? Why did you need to have that? Why did you want to have that? Who's going to make more money or have like a better time this week or what? Because they can have a domain name that ends in .zip. What? Yeah, it was pretty dumb. And really the dumb part is that I can allowed it. <laughs> they really shouldn't have. Although if we say every file extension that's ever existed can't be a TLD, that also doesn't make sense. But you know what would have solved this ahead of time, Alan? If instead of saying, oh, well, there are X number of TLDs, if from the earliest days being like, no, it's .com for everything. You want to have a .net? That's fine. You can have a .net.com. <laughs> you want to have a .org? That's fine. You have a .org.com. You want a .zip? That's fine. You can have a .zip.com. Well, we have dot as the root and we can have these other ones and it makes sense. But at this point, the fact that ICANN gets 200 grand every time somebody is willing to bootstrap one of these silly dot whatevers means that their incentives all inside out. And they're just like, well, Google wants to give us a pile of money. Sure, they can do whatever they want. You have the dot as, you know, the root. If you're working with bind, you don't have it in a browser. <laughs> well, yeah, your browser looks up dot to find out where dot com is the same as it looks for dot ca and dot zip. I've never actually tried this before. Yeah, the, the last dot is kind of implied. Implied doesn't always mean it'll be there. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that does work in Chrome and Firefox to my great surprise. But we don't require it, so it might as well not be there. It, it only works if it's required. Sure. Uh, my point is that your comment about we should have just made everything whatever dot com is we made everything whatever dot. It wasn't about the com. It was just about if we had a predictable, we know this is not a domain unless it ends in this character or sequence of characters, yeah. then we could put over nonsense before that we wanted to. But as it is, now we're left with, if I go to bigpileofmalware.zip, you know, am I opening that in File Explorer or in Internet Explorer? But if we go all the way back, it turns out .com was probably the worst choice because .com was one of the two executable extensions in DOS for the whole time. And so maybe it's like, if I hit the run key in Windows, I can type in a domain name and it'll fire up in the browser. Unless it's a .com, then it'll be like, I can't find that executable. Yeah. And that was an issue. And that was something that, you know, I was a little annoyed with back in the 1990s. Sure. But like, unless I type the HTTP, that still happens today, like right now. Well, assuming you find an actual .com, the thing that I noticed was very rapidly people stopped putting anything out with a .com extension for executable programs. Yeah, there was last a thing in like DOS 6.22. Yeah. But they, they made a note in one of the articles here about the command.com, which was the actual like shell in Windows uh, up until, mm -hmm. I guess it was Windows 95 and 98 in ME, but all the... Windows NT-based ones were cmd.exe instead. But anyway, uh, they know that uh, 3M owns command.com because it's their brand of the uh, mm -hmm. don't wreck the wall hanger thingies that like hold the poster on my wall up. I would just like to point out that you're saying that people who weren't born the last time there was a command.com can drink legally in the United States. Well, and when was the last time you used a .mov file? Well, you'll notice I haven't really complained about the .movs, but .zip? Yeah. Come on! Yeah. The one thing I would say is the people that would fall for these things is in, in malware probably don't know what a .zip file is either. <laughs> I don't know about that. Or, you know, they were going to fall for the link, whether they it was a real TLD or if it was foo.zip. 
totallyavirus.com. Mm. So I don't know that it's really making the malware posture that much worse. I agree, it's a dumb idea, and I don't know. <laughs> also, the fact that Google t- took a dot .foo is just like, screw you guys. I don't think the bar is, well, I don't think it made the malware posture that much worse. Like, how bad does it need to get, Alan? How much more headroom do we have to go ahead and keep cranking it up before you're like, nah, <laughs> we're good now. It's malware enough. I just don't see that having a legit .zip TLD is going to infect any more people than it would have fell for the scam if it wasn't the real TLD. I suspect I deal with actual end users more frequently than you do, and I do not share your optimism. Right. It's not optimism. I just assume they're all going to get infected no matter whether it's .zip or not. Yeah, but it's not just whether they get infected, Alan. It's how frequently they get Mm. infected. Mm. (laughs) So that's the thing, again, where I say, I deal with end users more frequently than you do. And it's not, do they get infected or not? It's how often do you lose the rest of your day because you've got to go un- their machine after they decided that, uh, oh, yeah, totally, you know, the U.S. Postal Service emailed me a PDF file in a zip with an exe in it that tells me when I'm going to get my package. And you will notice zip is part of that workflow. (laughs) What I found interesting was putting ads in URLs and how that is an attack vector, which isn't new necessarily, but has been kind of highlighted by this .zip TLD. It's not even vaguely new. It's a perfectly legitimate way to go ahead and immediately pass in a username and password to a resource. You can put in... Username colon password at. Yeah, the username colon password at site. And that works. That will pass in a username and a password to a site that's expecting it. Well, actually, I think most browsers now will ask, are you sure you want to send this username and password or something? They have some detection where it doesn't seem like you did it on purpose to make sure you're not sending extra credentials you didn't mean to send to a URL. Mm. I've seen that in a couple of places. But yeah, HTTP basic authentication stopped being such a bad idea when you could do it over HTTPS. So it wasn't just base 64. <laughs> yeah. I used to use that form all the time to log into uh, FTP sites using a browser. Yep. But the point being that you can disguise malware in a URL quite easily by putting the at symbol in there towards the end of it, which renders everything before the at somewhat irrelevant in terms of this website that you're going to. That's irrelevant because you can just send the user to goodsite.com.badsite.com.hahasucker.net.loser.zip. Yeah, true. Which they fall for all the time, I promise you. (laughs) Yeah, but even relatively sophisticated users, and I use the term loosely there, but... uh, Using a Unicode character that looks like a slash and sneaking that at in there, potentially with a very small font size, you could make it look like a relatively harmless URL that turns out to not be harmless at all. I mean, you could, or you could just use puny code to mimic a domain name without needing to worry about slashes or whatever, which is already a well-established tactic that works even better. Yeah, but I return to your point about making it that little bit easier to trick people. But it doesn't. That, that's not a new thing. It's been there forever, and it's just not that valuable as an attack vector because there are better ones. Yeah, like the one Jeff's talking about is they send you a link to paypal.com, but one of the A's in the PayPal is actually the Russian letter A, mm-hmm. which looks like an A on your screen, but is not actually the same letter. And in your browser, that domain turns out to be a completely different thing. With a completely legitimate certificate issued to PayPal with a Russian A. Uh, you got that one, but I, the the thing that I see more frequently than anything else is just the, you know, 
goodsite.com dot tons of other garbage, you know, whatever. And uh, users don't bother reading that far ahead to begin with. And, you know, email clients have a really nasty habit of wanting to truncate things like that to make it pretty so it won't wrap. And, you know, that also adds a cloak of legitimacy to it. It's a really nasty tactic. I'm not sure I've ever seen the at technique used in the wild, not because it's novel, but just because it's it, there's not much point. I mean, if anything, a normal user is more likely to freak out if they see an at. Because they'll be like, oh, I, I know I don't expect to see that anywhere in a domain or in a, you know, Earl or anything. What's going on? Why, why are there funny characters in this? It freaks them out. Mm. That was the, the first thought I had is like, I don't expect to see an at sign with a zip. The other just the at sign is like, who wants an email address that ends in .zip? Mm. I'm registering winrar.zip and you can't stop me. But either way, Google shouldn't have done this. God, no. Sure. But in particular, ICANN shouldn't have allowed it, but they just wanted the money. Mm-hmm. And they're not supposed to be about money. They're supposed to be about stewarding the internet for everyone. And yet they're like, sure, .zip, that's fine. I still say if ICANN had any real teeth, we would have, from the very beginning, had proper regional subdomain setups, you know, where you would, you would, if you wanted to find the city of Columbia's website, you would go to columbia.sc.us. The people that run .ca did that originally. So you were forced, like, my school board was like, whatever, .on .ca. So the school's website name was like two feet long because it was like schoolname.boardname.province.canada. But it turns out people wanted something.com because that was, they could advertise on the radio. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L ide.com slash 25a. Congress wants AM radio in all new cars. Trade groups say that's a mistake. Jim, I saw you tweeting about this. You've got strong feelings. It's not even necessarily about the story itself. Is just when I saw people commenting on it, it was very much a reminder that when there's something I don't know that much about, I should probably be a little bit more careful in how boldly I declare things about it. Because just pages on pages of people who think they're very clever talking about the propagation and distance of AM radio versus FM radio, when it has nothing to do with AM and FM, it has to do with the wavelengths, which are not attached to a modulation-demodulation technique by anything but regulation. And, you know, my original take on that was it seems silly to me to mandate AM radio in cars to be able to get these emergency broadcasts, when instead, you know, maybe it's time to think about better ways to deliver these emergency broadcasts. AM radio is such a dinosaur. It is the most 
vulnerable modulation and demodulation scheme to interference. It has absolutely no defenses against it whatsoever. It's intended for analog audio transmission, which is incredibly wasteful in bandwidth for what amounts to, basically, I mean, you want to send text messages. Maybe you want to have a robot read them on the other end, but that doesn't mean you need to send raw audio. We could be sending these messages, if we truly believe they're important, in formats that require an order of magnitude or more less actual bandwidth while having actual you know, error correction and interference resistance built into the protocol. But instead, Congress is like, let's force everybody to put a thing in their car like it's 1908 again. My only counter to that is all of those require orders of magnitude more technology to be able to decode. Is one ESP8266 really orders of magnitude more technology? It depends on, like, the fact that you can receive AM without batteries with like crystal radio really makes it better for the case of some natural disasters happen or other disasters happen. And we've had no electricity for a week. Your cell phone is dead, but you can still get AM radio. Whereas if you depend on your cell phone to receive the emergency alert and it's dead, then you don't get the alert. Did I say anything about a cell phone? The article did, sorry. And the article's like, 97% of people have a cell phone, so why don't we just use the cell phone alert system? It's like, because your cell phone might be dead. Yes, which leads us right back into the whole, like, you know, be careful about being too confident about things you don't necessarily know that much about. As far as the other thing with, you know, power requirements or whatever, that's that's a non-starter because modern emergency radios are generally, they generally do require some electrical power and you just provide it by hand cranking to charge a battery or in some cases, you know, a small photovoltaic cell. And in either case, adding one little ESP8266 to do some decoding, it does not add a significant power drain. It's just not an issue. It's not a cost issue. Yeah, but how much more technology does it need on the transmitting side? Because AM is not that great a range, so the place the broadcast is coming from is probably also subject to the disaster. AM is incredible for range. That's the whole point of AM, Alan. It bounces off the ionosphere. Yeah. FM has terrible range, again, not because it's frequency modulated, because it's in the megahertz. So it does not bounce off the ionosphere. It penetrates, which means you're limited to direct line of sight, and you also have issues with shadowing. AM radio can both carry farther and can reach around obstructions, because even if you can't get direct line of sight on, what is it, I think 535 to 1705 kilohertz, That bounces off the ionosphere, so even if you can't get direct line of sight, you get the first, second, or third hop off the ionosphere, which means you can get it on the other side of a mountain, you can get it in terrible atmospheric conditions, you can get it further distance than direct line of sight would necessarily get you. Again, this is all about the wavelength. It has nothing to do with the modulation. If you want to send these things using roughly 500 to 1700 kilohertz to get those RF properties, fine, but that doesn't mean we need to send it is raw analog amplitude modulated audio. I definitely see the advantage of getting that much spectrum back by killing off AM radio, but we're not proposing killing off AM radio. And again, this this law is more about stopping them from not putting AM radio in the car anymore, not necessarily forcing them to add it because the 2024 Ford Mustang was going to be the first car without it in 100 years, right? I'm not sure that's true. No, there was some stuff about Tesla, so maybe that's not correct. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't think my car has AM radio in it. I don't think it has FM radio in it. I can, like, it has, uh, it has software radio that I can pick up 
stations that are normally broadcast as FM, but I don't think I've got an actual FM tuner. Well, that is a, a completely different thing. Is that every cell phone can receive at least one of AM or FM and rarely ever actually lets you do it. Yeah, it can receive it, but if you want to hear it, you're going to need that, you know, headphone jack that your manufacturer probably deleted out of the phone in most cases. Well, I could use the speakers, I suppose, but or this dongle I have here, but... No, but you need the headphone jack to act as the aerial. Yeah. I just look at how badly the emergency alert system for cell phones was implemented in Canada and fear that any implementation of a replacement for AM radio as an emergency broadcast system will have a bunch of competing standards that nobody ever implements correctly and it all just works for shit. Versus an AM radio that, you know, I built out of parts when I was a 10-year-old can just receive and hear what the hell is going on in an emergency. A little bit of just keep it simple is less likely to break. By that argument, we should just ditch this whole radio thing altogether and go back to heliographs, Alan. I know what you're saying, and maybe not <laughs> wrong. Joe's going to edit it out, but there was a very long pause there before Alan spoke. <laughs> in particular, when they implemented the emergency alert system, like in the U.S., the system has a bunch of different levels so that it can treat an amber alert different from we're about to get nuked alert and so on. In Canada, we implemented only the top one, the presidential emergency alert thing. So... Every Amber Alert from 700 miles away makes my phone act like we're about to get annihilated. It's adorable that you think it's actually different down here in, in the USA, Alan. It has different levels. You can tell your phone not to, to, to not wake you up in the middle of the night for an Amber Alert. That assumes that they actually code it properly. They did code the part properly where it's impossible to ignore the top-level alert. Oh, by, by code, in this case, I meant that they actually code the alert properly when they send it out. Ah, right. Sure. Which. I promise you, is not a guarantee. There's a whole different story about the time they sent an alert that everything is totally fine at the nuclear power plant. Nobody needs to worry. It kind of reminds me of our earlier episode about, you know, Google deleting the lock icon off of the address bar. Yeah, maybe this isn't, this isn't the way to call attention to the thing we want to call attention to. Mm. I just find it hilarious that we're talking about AM radio on a podcast that's delivered via the internet and is, you know, a hundred years beyond... AM radio, and yet AM radio is still around. And yet, if it were not for the internet, if we were going to be doing this, we would be doing it on AM radio. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, And for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. Microsoft is scanning the inside of password-protected zip files for malware. Which is a good thing, because Mm -hmm. Office 365 accounts are intended for end users. That might mean people at home. It might mean 
people in white collar jobs at work, you know, whatever. But the point is, if you're using Office 365 to move around malware samples for your archive as a security researcher, you are doing it so horribly wrong and you really don't get to complain about this. Well, yeah, especially if the passwords are in the emails themselves or easily guessable by Microsoft's algorithms. Exactly how Microsoft is doing it. It's like mm-hmm. they're looking because, like Jim talked about previously, they fool people by, oh, here's the PDF of the tracking information from the U.S. Postal Service inside this zip. And here's the password for the zip. Mm-hmm. Why do people not stop and think, why is there a password on this zip if I'm supposed to open it? Those same people very frequently will adamantly tell you there is no password on their email account because, you know, they don't type it in. It's it's just in Outlook. So after a year, they're like, no, there's no password. No, there isn't a password. There's no password on my computer. There's no password on my phone. There's no password on my tablet. My email just works. If any of you think I'm making that up, I promise you, I promise you I'm not. <laughs> my email now actually doesn't have a password because it uses that passkey stuff plus MFA and so on and OAuth and everything. Did you actually remove the password from the account? Because I don't think you can do that if we're talking about Gmail, can you? No, it's not Gmail. It's Office 365. And so it uses OAuth too and does the thing where I'd like log in with my phone to prove it's me and so on. And then it gets a a long-lived token that my, that device gets to keep. So you have no password whatsoever? There's nothing but like scratch codes to fall back on? For the email part of it, yes. There's still a password to log into Microsoft, and then I could reset the tokens or whatever. It's like single points of failure, man. You can say you're eliminating them all you want, but you're just pushing that can back down the road a ways. The point of this (laughs) is more that my email client isn't saving a password in plain text somewhere to be able to log into my email anymore. It's saving a token that's specific to this device and wouldn't work for someone else, which is an advantage, finally. So moving back to the actual story, the story was that security researchers discovered that when they would email zip files of malware to one another with password infected, which if you are an actual malware researcher, that's the way that's normally done. Uh, It is in password protected zip files and the password is always infected, which they may or may not spell out in the body of the email itself, because if you're a security researcher, you should already know that. The researchers were annoyed that Microsoft was deleting their tasty malware. And, you know, I, I'm frankly a little contemptuous of that because, again, you're, you're just you're doing it wrong. You know, it's it's like putting anthrax samples in the work fridge. Just no, man, that's that's not. Yeah. No. But that raised the issue with consumers who saw that and suddenly got very upset at the idea that Microsoft was digging that deeply into the content of their messages. And. I'm not as mad at end users about that because they're not necessarily supposed to know better, but still, it's like, no, that, that's, that's a good thing for you. And if you don't want Microsoft to see that, then you, you shouldn't be sending it through there. Or at the very least, you should be using strong credentials that you're not putting in the same medium that you're sending the locked thing. You know, it's just, you put a key under the mat in front of your front door and you're upset when somebody lets himself into the, your house with it. Well, (laughs) yeah. In particular, I imagine more people are like, yeah, that's why I pay Microsoft to do my email because they're going to try everything they can to find the things that shouldn't get through and stop them. I wish more people were like that. They should be. That's the correct response. But most of the folks I see responding are just, you know, immediately, oh, no, the 
big tech is reading my emails. And well, then you shouldn't have made it so that email only worked off three big tech providers. And we could have still had a federated, regular, self-hosted email system. But you didn't want that. And so this is what you got. So live with it. <laughs> Better yet, if you don't like it, go get a Proton Mail account. The funnier one, though, is the guy who was using OneDrive and didn't realize it was removing the files from his computer when it stored them in SharePoint or OneDrive. And then OneDrive deleted the its copy of the files when it decided they were viruses. Yeah. I don't know why OneDrive and Apple Cloud and so on seem to really want to take the files and remove them from your computer. So I understand the, the Dropbox type model of like, I want to save a copy to the cloud, but it usually doesn't mean I want the copy of my computer to go away. Well, you can set it up either way. Yeah, it just seems like it's surprising a lot of users. Well, a lot of people actively enjoy and want it to be that way. They want the cloud copy to be the canonical version of it and everything else just mirrors that. It's easy for them to understand what's going on and they know what to expect everywhere they log in and look at it and they know that they already have all the things synced to that machine. Of course, all this breaks down when something happens like some guy in the office decides to upload a terabyte of product photo images and then 200 computers in the same organization are slurping it down as he's slurping it up and the internet's completely unusable for half a day until you, you know, unscrew all that, which is, that's a real war story, unfortunately. <laughs> but at any rate, yeah, that, that's a pretty common way to set things up. I'm, I'm not surprised by that. I will say again, given that these were InfoSec researchers complaining about these things happening, um, I, I have some sympathy, but I mean, it is just clown shoes all the way down. But Alan, you say that like that shouldn't be the default, but most people want that because most people only have limited storage on their phone or their laptop. Yeah, like I can, I can understand when I decide that I want to free up some space and delete files. It's just I'm not sure that I want the cloud thing to delete my copy until I'm very sure I'm, I'm happy with the cloud's copy of it. Alan Jude, too rarefied to understand the common man any longer. Film at 11. Seems like it. Not everyone has a desktop connected via 10 gigabit Ethernet to a massive ZFS array like you. Most people have like a 512 gigabyte SSD or whatever. That's all I have is 512 SSD in the machine. Yeah, but that's all most people have. Sure. Real point is the encryption in zip files is barely really to be termed as encryption. It is just password protected the same way how you can password protect the track changes feature in a Word doc. It's pretty trivial to bypass and really not hard to brute force. Uh, so I'm surprised Microsoft seems to be limiting itself to a password list and guessing based on the content of the emails and so on and not just brute forcing every zip file. Well, it's still computationally cheaper. Yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A 
Create a free account and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Winitude has done. They wrote in with some concerns about a remote desktop app called Rust Desk. Although it's a promising looking app with a proper FOSS license and a project page on GitHub, they're concerned about the number of Chinese contributors specifically and a lack of information about provenance of both source and binaries generally. So unfortunately, it's not really very easy for myself or Alan to just jump right in and say, you know, we looked at Rust Desk and it's totally fine, you guys. Uh, You can use it all you want. There's a lot of code present in any given modern application, and it takes about as many developer hours to read it as it did to write it in the first place. So there is a lot of work there that we just can't possibly put that many hours into before we record an episode. With that said, there are some ways to look into the trustworthiness of an app to some degree for yourself. One of those, Winitude already got a pretty good start on, verifying that there is a GitHub page and a proper license and a bunch of contributors. From there, you can look in a little further at the pattern that the code was contributed. It looks like this project probably already was fairly well along by the time it got dumped over the wall to GitHub, in my opinion. The majority of the commits come from only six contributors with a fairly substantial amount from another two, and the rest of the 180 so are basically drive-bys. Now, that's not at all uncommon in an open source application. It does indicate most likely that there's a commercial venture behind it frequently. Now, again, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's a very common pattern. You've got a small company, and they say, we want to produce this open source product, but we already have a monetization plan laid out. And so we're all very invested in getting this done, and they accept some contributions, but the majority comes from the core team. Again, none of this is is unusual or a red flag. I personally... I'm not comfortable with saying, oh, look, these are mostly Chinese folks. And I think that's a huge red flag. I don't think the xenophobia is particularly called for. And I don't think it's realistic to assume that a very small project coming out of about six people is (laughs) an op of the Chinese Communist Party or whatever. I, I think their goals are a little larger than that. But beyond that, you know, if you've heard all of that and you're still not comfortable, the correct answer is... You shouldn't use this software yet. You you just shouldn't because there haven't really been enough eyes on it. What is a problem out of the fact that the major contribution comes from such a small core team that all seem to know each other very well and they share the country of origin that you were worried about, it means that the rest of those 180 some odd contributors haven't necessarily gone that deep into the code. You know, they had like their one little patch they wanted to make to fix a thing that was bothering them, and they learned just enough about the code base to do that and contribute that and then move on, which is fine and it's healthy, but it doesn't guarantee you that like lots of people that aren't intimately affiliated with the project have genuinely looked at this code for problems, be they deliberate or accidental. So If you're not comfortable using that software at that state, you pretty much have to wait for one of a few things to happen. One of the best things that could happen is if the project gets picked up by some major distributions, well, then that distribution starts building the code from source themselves, 
that solves one of the potential issues where you're not sure if you trust the binaries because you don't know if the binaries were built from exactly the source code you're looking at. Well, if Ubuntu's or Red Hat's or OpenSUSE's maintainers built that and have it in their repository, they built it from the source and you do know the source they built it from. And you're not just trusting the people who made RustDesk. Now you're trusting people at your distribution who don't have that direct affiliation. So that would be a huge step forward to eliminate a lot of the trust issues that you have. Right. And if you're worried about that, on their GitHub, they do provide the instructions to use VS Code to build the source code yourself and build a binary that you built yourself. And that you will know that the source code you checked out is exactly what's built into that binary. Which, unfortunately, is more than a lot of people are going to have the uh, the skill, the time, or the willingness to do. Right. And in those cases, again, we're, we're right back where I was saying, you know, if you're not a software developer and you feel like this has not reached your level of trust, that's valid. And the answer is you shouldn't trust it yet. And these are the things to watch out for. Yeah. And in particular, just because something is open source doesn't mean it doesn't do bad things, whether that's on purpose or by accident. But yeah, waiting for it to get a little more popular and let somebody else be the one to find out if it's okay or not is a totally legitimate thing to do. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrssnet on Twitter. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.